So as we all celebrated Christmas this past week with our families, in a room of this size with this many families here, that's a real mixed bag of experiences. For some moments are full of joy and they're wonderful, and then there's other moments that are they tug at our hearts, they, 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 they are challenging for us, because all, of our, all family is challenging, is it not? There's, uh, the, the, the holiday seasons are always filled with these uh, mixed emotional experiences. Some, some family uh, gather together, and some of us it's hard to gather together, or we don't get to gather together. Some uh, of us enjoy getting in the car, piling in the car to go and visit the extended family. Some of us are in the car looking at our watches, deciding ahead of time what time we're leaving before we even got there. Right? So you have moments where the tears of joy are in the eyes, moments where we're rolling the eyes. It's all there. It's all happening all at one time. And every once in a while, you'll come across someone who talks about Christmas like their families were straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. And you're like, I just can't relate to this. And they're like, oh, no, everything's great. We're too blessed to be stressed. And oh, I just love the holidays and I love family and blah, da, da, da. And just thinking to yourself, that is incredible. You need to pitch that stuff to Netflix. That is a Netflix special. I'll just, I'll give you a working title, Christmas in La La Land, you know, because we all love our families. And at the same time, there's a measure of messiness in all of our families. And God humbling himself that first Christmas day and coming to earth and incarnating himself in Jesus Christ, the king who was in a manger who would eventually be the king on the cross. You know, that is about family, but it's not about family the way we think about it. It's not just about your nuclear family. It's not about my nuclear family. The gift of God's grace is that he has created a global, multicultural, multi-generational, and eternal family. And every Sunday... God's kids gather around the tree, the cross of Christ. And we celebrate around that tree to celebrate the ultimate gift of grace, the one who will make all things new. Our text today is from Galatians chapter 3 and 4. There's some excerpts there. You'll see them in your notes. And this text, this passage, it speaks about the profound implications that were set in motion that first Christmas that created this new kind of family. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. <clears throat> now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor and disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a tutor. Chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is God's word. This morning, we're going to unbox grace. We're going to unbox it. It's so satisfying. The gospel, like I've been saying over the, this Advent season, it's not a gift that fades and gets old and you toss to the corner and is no longer exciting. The good news is always good news because our life is always in a context in which we need it. 
it's always good, it's always fresh, it's satisfying, like peeling the plastic off those screens. You're just like, oh, that's so satisfying. The gospel never ceases to be satisfying if we will pause our hearts, our minds, our souls, and gaze on it. So let's look at this. As we unbox grace, as we exegete grace, we're going to look at three things, three gifts we're being given. The gift of redemption, the benefit of adoption, and the call to ongoing formation. Now, this gift of redemption, this is a ministry of the Son. The benefits of all of this adoption, that was always the plan of the Father. And this call to ongoing formation, this is the work of the Spirit. So let's look at this Trinitarian tidal wave that comes at us, these gifts of grace at Christmas. See, Jesus Christ coming that first Christmas, he's born under the law to redeem us from the law, which is a mic drop on dead religion. This whole letter to the Galatians was dealing with the problem of dead religion because at the core of dead religion is salvation by rule keeping. And at the core of the gospel is salvation by rescue. If you were to distill all of the religions of the world down to, at the end of the day, what saves you, whether it's Buddha's last words to his monks on his deathbed, whether it is the the instruction given to the Muslims in the Quran, whether it is uh, the practices of the multifaceted polytheism of the Hindu faith, it can all be distilled down to the word behave. But the gospel at the core is distilled down to the word behold. We behold Christ and we behold his goodness and what he has done for us. That leads to all kinds of glorious and beautiful behaving. But the behaving doesn't save us. And so Jesus was born under the law to redeem us from the law. When you look at verse 23, the law is described uh, in 23 and 24 two ways, as a prison guard and as a tutor. When you think about the prison guard, guards do not bring deliverance. That's not their job. The job of the guard is to remind you that you need deliverance. You're very much in need of deliverance. I remember I was uh, flying out of uh, JFK to come home after a work trip, and it was around November, so end of November leading into Christmas time. Christmas stuff was already everywhere in New York City, and uh, so I bought Susan this New York City snow globe. And she uh, has had a couple snow globes that she collected from different places. And I got her this big New York City snow globe. I said, she's going to love this. Put in the checked, put it in my uh, carry-on and started going through the airport. Well, I get up to security and the guy's like, sir, do you have a snow globe in here? And I was like, oh my goodness, I've, sounds very serious. Yes, I do have a snow globe in here. Sir, do you, know, do you realize that it's illegal to bring a snow globe on a plane? I am so sorry. No, I did not know that. Sir, do you realize that a snow globe can be used as a weapon? Now that you mention it, I can see that, but it didn't occur to me before. And it's like, sir, did you not see the signs? And then when I looked, everywhere were these computer printout signs. No snow globes. No snow globes allowed. It is against the law to have snow globes. No, 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 snow globes. No, snow globes, just everywhere. I just walked by all of them. Now, firstly, I walked by all of them because I'm not the most observant person in the world. But secondly, because I, it, I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with a snow globe on a plane. I just walked by the law like it didn't matter to me. I needed the law to draw my attention to my infraction. Christ was born under the law to redeem us from the law because once the, God's law actually draws you to your infraction... You, you recognize that it is an impossibly high standard. 
I'll unpack that in a second so you can, so you can see this. We needed the law to show us our need for deliverance. We needed the law to show us our need for a Savior. We needed the law to show us how we, day in and day out, break the law. It's also called a tutor in verse 24. In, in the Greek, because when you think of tutor, this is why I'm even bothering to give you the word in the Greek, because when we think of tutor, we think of a really kind and caring person sitting around the living room table helping our kids excel in their studies, and it's like a warm kind of tutoring situation. Right? But in the Greek, the, the, the tutor, the, the pedagogos, they called them, was a harsh disciplinarian. They were the keeper of the moral standards. They took away your freedoms. They were like, you have, an, you have an inheritance coming to you, but you are an undisciplined child. And so you are essentially, the tutor kept you under house arrest so that you, until you learned what needed to be learned, it was a harsh relationship that they had with, the, with, these, with these tutors. The relationship with the tutor was constantly working on rewards you know, for, uh, versus punishment. This was the kind of relationship that it, lo- that it was in the ancient world. And so the law shows us what the standard of God's love requires. It's impossibly high because when Jesus summarized this law that he came to redeem us from in Matthew 22, we find that it's a law of love. The law is, and I've said it many times, the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and then love the people who are sitting all around you as much as you love yourself. And friends, we just don't do that. We have moments when we love and then we don't. But no, we don't do it. We're not, we're not walking in perpetual, personal, perfect love for our neighbors. If you're here this morning, whether you're a Christian, you're a person of, of uh, non-faith, and you're considering and you are thinking through, um, you know, what, what, what is, who is this God and what does it mean? You see, he's not just a cosmic killjoy. He's not an angry disciplinarian with a two-by-four saying, these are my rules to keep. He's actually a God of love who from his own love, spun the cosmos into existence from love, Father, Son, Spirit, Trinitarian, enjoying relationship forever. You can't love, you can't be loving without something, an object to love, without somebody to love. Our God was enjoying love within the Godhead from all of eternity, spun the cosmos forward into love. And so the law is love. Love God with everything and love the people around you with everything. And regardless of your worldview, you're just not that loving a person. None of us are. Nobody, if there was a line that said perfect perfection and love for neighbor, there's no agnostic or atheist or Buddhist or Muslim or Christian that can stand in that line. None of us can stand in the line. And so the law was given and the tutor was given to show us our need for a Savior. Christ came, of course, to deliver us from this. And just as the night sky accentuates the brilliance of the stars, God's law of love, it accentuates the, the brilliance of God's forgiving grace against the dark backdrop of the selfishness and the darkness that's in all of our hearts. And so here's the good news of the gospel that we celebrate every Sunday. It's that Jesus was not born under the law to inspire better performance. He was born under the law to deliver us through his perfect performance. And that is why it is a gift of redemption. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 5, it says that Christ was born under the law to redeem us. And the word redeem, in the Greco-Roman world, it was quite often used to describe buying back a slave, buying somebody out of slavery. It's an, it's an abhorrent image. It's an image of someone who has no freedoms and no rights, and then they're being, they're being 
freed because their debt is being paid in full. So that's the word that Paul uses to describe what Jesus did. The word for a debt being paid in full, if you look at an ancient Greco-Roman document, and they have them, where uh, a bill has been paid, you'll find the Greek word there, tetelestai. And that is Christ's last word on the cross. It is finished. Tetelestai. Paid in full. He came to redeem us from the law. He came to do for us what we quite simply could not do for ourselves, which leads to the next thing. Now we, church, relate to life in relation to the benefits of our adoption. The gift of redemption was the ministry of the Son. We now live day to day in the benefit of this great adoption, which of course was always the plan of the Father. And so in order to teach the church in Galatia, and us today by extension, what does it look like if you've been redeemed by grace? How do you relate to the law? Paul uses the language of adoption. All of you kids who are in here, if you opened a gift on Christmas morning from a friend or a family member, I'll bet you none of you opened the gift and went, and then threw your arms around the person who gave it to you and then whispered in their ear, don't worry, I'm going to pay you back for this. None of you did that. You were just like, wow, thanks. Christianity is not a weekly installment plan by which we slowly pay Jesus back for what he did. By gathering together and worshiping and making sure that heaven is watching. Did you see that? We gather together because this grace is oxygen that our souls need. We gather together. God commands us to gather and to worship him. To stop dead in our tracks every seven days and marvel at what we have been given. So we can live out the implications of this adoption. We're not paying God back for the gift of grace. It's, a, it's an image of a child who's been uh, brought into a, re- a relationship. A new relationship. And if you are new to the Christian faith or you're here this morning exploring the Christian faith, what you need to know is God is not needy. He didn't create the world because he needed a bunch of little people to work. He's not needy. He didn't need anything and he still doesn't need anything. We very much need him. He created us from sheer love and God did not create the world and did not create you and I because there's something deficient in himself. He created the world and he created us to give of himself. And so in the end, spoiler alert, you read Revelation, he restores everything so that he, so that he enjoys and we enjoy what he intended in the first place. That's where all of history is going. So we now relate to all of this as children until we get this glorious picture of adoption. In verse 5, the phrase is used, receive adoption as sons. And I want to speak to this term sonship. It's a legal term, and particularly for you ladies who are here who would look at this and say, should I be offended by this? We talk about, I've dissected this at Redeemer before, but I want to do it for the benefit of those of you who may be um, newer to Redeemer today. When the New Testament calls women sons, it's the same way in which throughout the gospel, men have to wrap their minds about around being called brides, right? So, We are the bride of Christ. And when the Bible gives us these metaphors, it's getting us to think about our relationship for God. So, for example, if I was preaching from a text where the men had to think about themselves as brides, then we would be thinking about how a bride has, there's an anticipation in her heart, there's an excitement, there's a preparation, long preparation, 
Brides don't wake up the morning of the wedding and go, eh, what to wear? Like, that, no. There is like so much thought and preparation and like anticipation. So men need to think about their relationship with Jesus like a bride. That love and that cherishing and that constant sort of uh, preparing of the heart and the cleansing of the, uh, uh, of putting things aside. And that's how they think. Ladies today, in this text about sonship, in the ancient world, only the eldest son got an inheritance. So what Paul does is he calls the ladies sons, not to offend the ladies, but to actually offend the culture. Because he's saying, actually, in Jesus Christ, you're given a dignity that the culture doesn't give you. That, uh, I need these. That um, you are given an inheritance. And so that's the reason for, for this uh, terminology of son, sonship. But we are all given this undeserved, gracious inheritance. And so this legal term of, of being adopted, it's a life of privilege, right? It's a new life of privilege that's come. And the significance of this is that it reforms the church. It reformed the ancient church. It destroyed class barriers. It, destroys, it destroyed socioeconomic barriers. It destroyed racial barriers. Because if it's saying we're all adopted children and we all are sharing in the same inheritance, then that means you can't relate to anybody else in this room with an air of superiority because of your education or the money in the bank or the, life, the life that you, lifestyle that you're leading, your gender. You, there's no room for superiority in the church. And conversely, there's no room for inferiority in here. None of you need walk in here and say, I gotta kind of slunch over and not make eye contact because I don't have the education of that person or I don't have the socioeconomic standing of that person, or I don't have the social clout of this person. There's no room for inferiority. You walk in here, and you're a child of grace, period, full stop, end of conversation. There's no class, culture, barriers. We're adopted children. And so that leads us to live our lives with a tremendous amount of humble confidence. Because adoption makes us like children with nothing to prove. When a child knows they're loved, that child has nothing to prove. A child that knows their love relates very differently than a child that isn't sure if they're loved. A child that finds himself in a compromising, uh, morally ambiguous situation is going to relate to that very differently when they know they're loved and they have nothing to prove versus a child that isn't sure they're loved and if they have to perhaps prove to everybody that's in the room. Adoption gives us an innate sense of identity. And by innate sense of identity, I mean contrary to the culture, your identity is not achieved. In the gospel, your identity is received. It is inherent. It transformed the way that the ancient church related. Culturally speaking, most people in the church were slaves. And by slaves, I mean, that was in an ancient term. It's like if you weren't an owner, you were a slave. That's most people. If we were to talk about the people in this room using ancient vernacular, most of us, unless we don't have mortgages and we own our own businesses and we have no debt, by ancient standards, we're slaves. So in the ancient world, it revolutionized the way that they related. There was no distinction. And it created a tremendous amount of, of glorious uh, unity in the church. And that's afforded to us today as well. Adoption enables us to engage in life with this humble confidence because we are not worried about the future. 
you will relate to the challenges at work and in life and in the news a lot differently when you are not worried about the future. Right? We just came out of an election, and so the next four years, we will all be looking for various measures as Canadian citizens of, of, for the government to do responsible things to benefit those they govern. Right? That's just responsibility 101. But we can't look to the government to give us security in our hearts and security in our future because that is just quite simply above their abilities, beyond their pay grade, They're incapable of, of doing that. And so we live with a, a tremendous amount of security in how the future is going to turn out. Right? We care about climate change and we want to be responsible ecological stewardship stewards of, of the earth. But we're not going to run around like with worry and anxiety destroying our souls because we're not worried about where everything's headed. We know where everything is headed. We're going to be responsible citizens in many regards, in many regards, just like our neighbors, whether they're of, of, of uh, share our faith or they're of non-faith. We're going to care deeply about what's going on in the world, but we're not going to lose our minds about it because quite frankly, the Christian faith teaches us that this life is not all that there is. And so now we are free to love and serve and care and give and empty and give our lives away without the anxiety and worry. You know, this last week, um, an amazing thing happened. The Toronto Raptors won a 30-point deficit game, the largest comeback in franchise history. Now, granted, I have to tread softly as I talk about this because I cheered for the Raptors hardcore 25 years ago, you know, when everybody was, you know, on board when the franchise came to Canada. And then I drifted away like everybody else. And then when the Raptors were going to the NBA Finals, then I jumped on that bandwagon hard. I jumped on the back of it so hard, people were flying off the front. And, and uh, so I started watching the Raptors again. But, you know, they, they came back from 30. And I was watching that game last Sunday. I was sitting down, relaxing Sunday afternoon. I'm watching the game. And, you know, I don't mind when teams lose, but I just wanted to be competitive. And I'm like, oof, this isn't even looking competitive. So I tuned out. And I tuned out too early because then later I looked and I said, what? You see, the gospel, adoption, the gift of adoption, it enables us to not tune out. We can look right into the wreckage of our lives, the wreckage of the world. We can look into the darkness and, and, and not to have to tune out. Not have to be like, this looks so bad. It's just ruining my vibes. I just can't think about it. I'm going to go and numb myself with a Netflix binge because I don't want to think about the seriousness of the world. The gospel enables us to go, you know what, I'm going to look right into this wreckage because in the end, what the, go what, what, what the gospel gives us is that there is a glorious comeback that's coming and that in the end, there will be restoration of all things and we will get to enjoy it. This is the benefits of our adoption, how it changes how we engage in the day-to-day. -day. You know, in this text, we get God's goal that first Christmas. It's the pinnacle of Paul's argument in Galatia, it's the climax of the gospel, and it's that we're kids. There's a Scottish theologian named Sinclair Ferguson, and he says it this way, to be God's children, enjoying life to the full with God, this is the apex of creation. This is the goal of redemption. Which leads us to the final thing. After we have been given this gift of redemption through the ministry of the Son, and we now relate to life with this Glorious, humble confidence, this benefit of our adoption, which was always the plan of the Father. We embrace the call to ongoing formation. This is the work of the Spirit. 
You know, many of us are going to say, and I'm one of them, they're going to say, you know, in 2020, it would probably be a good idea if I just ate a little healthier, exercised a little more, and just got, you know, maybe I should go to the, maybe I should go to the gym. Maybe I should find out where the gym is in my city um, and then go there. Okay, so maybe, maybe you're in that category, right? And uh, the thing about going to the gym is it requires ongoing formation, diet and exercise. It's just ongoing formation. And people will, 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 will tell you, you know, you don't do these crazy crash diet things. It's not healthy. You don't, you don't say, that's it. I'm going to do 100 push-ups for 100 days while I also eat 100 slices of pizza. You have to do ongoing. That was weirdly specific, wasn't it? <laughs> Anyways, I have done it. Uh, so <laughs> it's ongoing formation is that it's about lifestyle. And so... We are called to ongoing formation as, as Christians who have been given the gift of grace, who now our obedience to Christ is not saving us. Our obedience to Christ, our formation now, is about the ongoing deliverance and healing and restoration work in us. It's like the gym. Augustine said it this way, that worship is the gymnasium of the soul. And so as we gather corporately on Sundays, we're, there, is a, there is a working of the gymnasium in our soul, as the word of God is read and preached, as we sing his praises of deliverance, as we eat and as we drink at the Lord's table Sunday after Sunday. It's like adjusting your diet. It's like exercise. It just becomes an ongoing part of formation. In your homes, as you're reading and meditating on the scriptures, teaching them to your children, right? Having discussions just about life and culture and art and business and politics and, and giving thought to how the, the gospel comes to bear in all of those things. It's all formation. Look at verse 24. It says that Christ has come and we're no longer subject to a tutor. And the picture here is of a child who comes into maturity. See, if that child doesn't need the tutor anymore, they don't need to be coerced into obedience because they have internalized the family values. What is Christian maturity? It's not merely an increase of knowledge of the scriptures though that could be good, but the Pharisees had the best intellectual assent to the scriptures, but they did not internalize the values. They had an intellectual understanding of God's word, but they did not internalize God's love. For us, maturity, church, as children of grace, as those who have nothing to lose, nothing to earn, who have a future that is secure in Christ, we now desire to internalize the family values. How many of you kids who are in here, I've noticed your parents, um, they guide your eating. Have you noticed that? They don't just let you eat whatever you want. Right? They, the reason they do that is because if they let you eat whatever you want, the four food groups would be sugar, MSG, fat, salt. Boom. And that's why they guide your, um, you know, they have to guide you. After the service, we're like, let's have, cocky, co <laughs> let's have coffee and a, and a cookie. And... Um, yeah, so we gather and we grab coffees and we take a cookie and, and here's you. Waiting to see if they're not looking. Boop, there goes another one. Boop, there goes another one. Mom looks away. Boop, there goes another one. The, real, the really short, short kids are tugging on the, tugging on the tablecloth, drawing the plates closer. Get up there, grab another one. That's what you do. When driving home, your parents look in the rearview mirror. Are you still chewing? Did you like tuck that back there like a chipmunk? How are you still chewing? 
<coughs> see, one day, kids, one day, you're going to value a healthy diet. I know that day isn't today. But one day, you're going to internalize that value. This is what Christian maturity, this is what adoption leads to, ongoing formation. When a child internalizes the values, when God's word says, do this, the heart of a mature child says, I want this. When we read God's word, and now we have a new relationship to God's law, and God's law says, do not do that, the heart of the mature child who is internalizing the values reads that and says, I don't even want that. This is the lifelong journey of ongoing formation that we're being called to, growing and becoming mature in our faith. Right? If we are, if we are self-righteous, we will pride ourselves in how our spiritual disciplines are more developed than the people sitting around us. Self-righteous. If we are lawless, then we're going to have no regard for spiritual disciplines. And we're going to be too self-absorbed to care about the people who are sitting around us. But if we engage in this lifelong journey, this call into formation, mature Christianity, it looks like internalizing the family values, wanting to bear our father's resemblance, and wanting to love the people who are right now sitting around us. And of course, extending that into the city. I want you to notice how this whole passage, it shifts and moves from being under the law to being under grace. Life under the law is like being imprisoned, living with a harsh disciplinarian. Life under grace is adoption. It's a one-time legal event, and then it ushers you into a lifetime of growing into the values of your adopted family. In verses 6 and 7, it says, You're no longer a slave, but a child. And if you're a child, then you're also an heir. And so you've got this image of a child being adopted out of a slave market by a wealthy person, being, given an, being made an heir, being given an inheritance. That child that's adopted off the street, who is now about to inherit tremendous inheritance, they're about to embark on a lifelong journey of ongoing formation. They are about to learn how to think and relate and live in new ways. That child was not adopted and given an inheritance, but then left at the mercy of their destructive patterns. And you and I have not been scandalously saved by grace alone, apart from our works, to be left at the mercy of our destructive patterns. The same grace that rescued you will reform you, will renew you. The same grace, Titus uh, chapter 1 teaches, the same grace that saved us also teaches us. And so it's this beautiful picture of ongoing formation. That life under the law, it looks like being told over and over what God loves. Life under grace, it looks like pursuing what God loves. Life under the law, it looks like being told over and over and over what God says is true, what God says is good. Life under grace, it's actively integrating into your life what God says is true, what God says is good. Notice the if-then language. If a child, then also an heir. Do you see that? See, the gospel works because therefore... Because of Christ, therefore I'm free. Because of Christ, therefore I'm saved. Because of Christ's sufficiency, therefore I'm now an adopted child of God. Because, therefore. But then once you are therefore into Christ, notice what Paul does. Look at the language. If then. If you're Christ, then it also, there's going to be this ongoing formation. And how we can enjoy our freedom. This call to, to set down our vices and increasingly live into Christ's values. So really, the application of all this, the prayer is, what am I being called out of, and what am I being called into? 
What would the Spirit call me to lay aside and drop? I mean, of course, that's not going to happen overnight. That might be a, a lifelong battle and fight for us, but we're inher- we've inherited uh, eternity. We're children of adoption. And so how then do we li- live into the implications of that adoption? The Spirit's work, it's not sporadic, mystical experience that comes and goes in a moment's time. The Spirit's work is ongoing formation of rich heart and mind renewal over the course of our lifetime. And the good news in all of this is that this is not accomplished by our willpower. It's by the Spirit's power. And so all of us who call God Father, we're on this trajectory of ongoing formation, increasingly bearing the resemblance of our Father, because that's what the children of grace want to do. Let's pray.